0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. Alvin, I don't think I've ever said your last name out loud. How do I say it? It's Meleth. Melleth? Melleth. Am I doing that right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, Alvin Melleth, why are we here today? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you using my government name like that? Alvin Melleth is a producer at The Experiment. And we started talking about something he's been thinking about for a while now.
0: So this summer in July, I saw that the federal government had executed someone. And I remember reading about it in the news at the time and being a little surprised by it because, you know, there are states that do executions regularly, but the federal government hasn't actually executed someone in 17 years. Like, the last time was 2003. There were none in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Like, it's just not a thing that we do very often.
1: Huh. I didn't fully realize it had been that long.
0: Yeah, I hadn't either. And I think I was like actually trying to make sense of how to feel about it. And then two days later, they executed someone else. And then a day after, they executed someone else. And then two more in the next month. And then two more the month after that. And I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact that the federal government says they do this on our behalf. It's just a weird thing to have the government kill someone on your behalf. (laughs) Like, war and the death penalty, right? It's like the two times that someone does violence in your name. I just felt really far away from it. uh, And I wanted to try to get closer to it, or at least try to understand exactly what's being done in my name. So I started reading about each of the executions, and one of the things I found out was that these killings were all actually happening in the same room, in the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. And at each of these executions, there would be the person being executed, and the prison officials, you know, one with a stethoscope to declare the time of death. But the eighth execution was for a man named Orlando Hall. He was a black man from Arkansas who was found guilty of murder by an all-white jury. And for him, there was one other person in the room. He wasn't a prison official. He had nothing to do with the case. He was just a civilian. And so I called him.
2: My name is Yusuf Ahmed Noor. I am a professor at the business school, Indiana University, Kokomo, and I teach uh, strategic management and international business. He's a business
1: professor? What was a business professor doing in a death chamber?
0: He answered an email (laughs) to be Orlando's spiritual advisor. (laughs) I didn't know about this at first, but in the U.S., we've decided that the First Amendment gives people on death row the right to a spiritual advisor from whatever religion they belong to. And so Yusuf, who wasn't paid to be there, just sort of stepped into this whole thing. He volunteered to do it, actually. And I think I wanted to know what kind of a person does that and what he saw.
2: I never thought I'm an emotional person, but every time I remember and I talk about my experience in the death chamber, I become emotional. Every time I talk about it, I feel emotional about it. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah. if there's a point where it just feels like you need to take a little break, that's completely okay.
2: Yeah, it's, it's going to be just a pause. I'll be quiet maybe for a few seconds. That's okay. Yeah.
1: This week, a conversation with a man who got very close to the death penalty in the United States. Producer Alvin Melleth brings us the story of a man who couldn't look away. I'm Julia Longoria. This is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country.
2: You know, I'm of nomadic background. I was born in the nomadic area of Somalia.
0: Yusuf Ahmed Noor grew up in Mogadishu,
2: the capital of Somalia. It was one of the quietest towns right on the Indian Ocean. I grew up uh, swimming. Just warm weather, humid, but uh, absolutely uh, gorgeous.
0: I loved it. Outside of the water, though, Yusuf said he had a pretty unhappy childhood. Both of his parents died when he was five years old. He was raised by an aunt in a country that was under a military dictatorship. He spent a lot of time by himself. One of the only ways he found to escape was through books.
2: There are so many things that are unexplained things. Reading makes you, it broadens your mind. It broadens your horizon. It makes you think about things
0: he got a membership to the American Library to practice his English and he started reading all of these books about the US.
2: I read almost everything uh, about the United States, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I remember reading Roots, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, To Kill a Mockingbird. And so I guess they were popular at the time and uh, I absolutely did not get it. I totally miss the message and the nuances because come from Somalia where you know nothing like that exists. Somalia is very homogeneous. The concept of black it doesn't exist in Africa, you know. <laughs> this color that Americans are so fixated on doesn't exist. People don't think they're black there. The first time you hear that you're black is here in America when people describe you. And then you look around, are they talking about me? You know, something like that. (laughs) And so you don't, it doesn't register with you.
0: In some ways, Yusuf has always been an observer of the U.S. on the outside, looking in. He first came here in 1986 to do an MBA program. He never actually intended to stay. It was purely accidental. I was going to go back, but then things were getting worse. Back in Somalia, Yusuf's friends were starting to agitate for democracy. The military dictatorship there arrested a lot of them, even threatened some with execution. Yusuf thought that if he went back, he'd be in the same boat. So he applied for political asylum in the U.S. and got it. He got married to a white woman from the South and suddenly found himself with two American kids.
2: What really surprised me was that I have two sons. They don't take the kind of risks that I take. To give you an example, my, my son and I went to get a motorcycle Uh, He's trying to get me into motorcycle riding. So we went to a town that's about two hours drive from here and uh, he wanted to pee. And, you know, I ride bikes and if I need to pee, I just stop and go behind a tree. I don't give a second thought at all, you know? (laughs) But he was very careful. He was thinking, I don't know how people will react to me if they see me there. And, and my son could easily pass for an Arab. You know, he's mixed. He would blend in. He doesn't stand out as, you know, black. So it really surprised me that his attitude about what he can do and how worried he is about how people would view him and how they would react. And we went back and forth and back and forth, and <laughs> it never really crossed my mind that he developed that kind of attitude. And it's because he was brought up here. He's hearing everything, you know, all the racial issues and all the racial ramifications. That kind of attitude of taking risks and not worrying about how people will react or what they would say and just, it, it may be part of the Somali character, I don't know. but. I still have that Somali attitude. And I find it's really strange, the kind of risk, quote unquote, risks that I take.
0: Throughout his career, Yusuf ended up teaching all over the country. But no matter where he went in the U.S., he always made it a point to find a mosque.
2: I have always been, since I came here, I've always been involved in the Muslim communities. Wherever I go, I have always been very active.
0: He'd gone to Muslim elementary schools and high schools. He'd grown up reading the Quran. So when he finally landed in Bloomington, Indiana, he did what he always did. He got involved with his local mosque.
2: I'm one of the elders. And I'm also involved in the multi-faith movement in Bloomington. We do a lot of interfaith things with them. And so the minister of the Unitarian Universalist Church emailed us about Orlando. And what do the emails say? It said that there's a man who's on death row, and he needs a Muslim person to be his uh, counselor, his spiritual counselor.
0: The execution was slated to happen in a few weeks at the U.S. penitentiary in Terre Haute, just an hour's drive from Bloomington. They needed someone familiar with Islam to counsel the man. But the mosque in Bloomington is all volunteer. There's no paid clergy who would be the sort of default person to do this.
2: So it's kind of a very democratic religion in that respect. So after a, maybe a week, I didn't see any response to that. So I asked if anybody re- responded to that email, and they said no, nobody has responded. So Yusuf Googled the man on death row. His name was
0: Orlando Hall. In 1995, Orlando was convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of a 16-year-old named Lisa Renee. He and another man drove Lisa from her home in the back of a car. They poured gasoline over her, and then they buried her alive. Orlando was 23 at the time. When Yusuf got the email, Orlando had been on death row for more than 20 years. When you had gotten the email originally and read it, what was your feeling? Was your feeling someone else is going to do this?
2: Yeah, I I was thinking that... (laughs) That somebody would do it. But deep down, I knew that, uh, you know, in general, things that are unpleasant, it usually falls on me. (laughs) So I decided to do it the moment I realized that nobody else was going to do it. Why not just let the email go? You know, you have a fellow human being who is on death row, and they're going to uh, kill him. And so it was, it was, I didn't really think about it. It's just like, uh, this guy needs help and he's seeking somebody to talk to. And that's the least you can do. It entails some sacrifice, but it's not a, compared to what he's going through. uh, What I'm going to do is a piece of cake. So Yusuf decided to meet
0: Orlando. He drove about an hour to Terre Haute, went in.
2: And I was accompanied by this prison official who took me through multiple heavy metal doors through an elevator and finally to the visitation room where I was on one side of the room and he's on the other side of the room and we're separated by a glass wall. So what do you first say to Orlando? Well, you know, greeting Muslim greetings, peace be with you in in Arabic. That was our first exchange. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Alaikum salam. The allocated time is from nine till three, and I spend those six hours with him that first time. But one thing that I wanted to know was whatever he did, that he was uh, contrite, that he was sorry, that he was regretful. And so it's one of the first things that we talked about. And it was very clear to me that he regretted what he did or the role that he played in the killing of that young woman. Whether he was guilty or not, I decided that that part was not my job. That was not my role. Right away, I could see that he was already, you know, reconciled to his fate. He was not nervous. He was ready part of Islamic teaching is that everybody's going to die. It's not about how you die. It's everybody has a time and a day and an hour where they die and you just accept it. And so he was reconciled despite the fact that he didn't believe that he should die. And what kind of questions did he have for you? We talked about Islam in general. He studied thoroughly Islam, he knew a lot. He brought his books. He brought a copy of the Quran in English. And so we talked about, uh, you know, religious concepts, religious philosophy. We talked about the death penalty in Islam. And so we also talked about the political side of American executions, and the fact that the rate of executions is much higher. And the rate of incarceration in America is much higher. You know, more African-Americans are incarcerated percentage-wise, than whites. And, you know, he even mentioned the fact that this string of executions, they started with a white guy. And he said, you know, who do they think they are fooling? They started with a white guy just to show that they're not targeting African-Americans. But he said, they're not fooling anybody. Two thirds of the people there on death row in Terre Haute, he said, were non-white.
0: Yusuf met with Orlando two more times. And through his lawyer, Orlando asked Yusuf for one final favor. If Yusuf would be in the room with him when the execution happened.
2: And I said, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to be there. But if he wants me to be there, I am going to be there. That's the least I can do.
0: The day of the execution, Yusuf made the long drive to Terre Haute. Through the changing leaves on State Road 46... He met with Orlando first thing in the morning, and they went over last rites. And then he waited. Later that night, a guard brought him into the execution room.
2: The victim is lying down on the gurney right in the middle of the room, closer to the the wall. The opposite wall, one of the long walls, the opposite wall is where the windows are. Glass windows. And so I could see the windows that are the media and the family room, and Orlando could see them because the gurney, the torso part is raised a little bit. So he can see that, he can see them uh, while lying down there, uh, strapped to the gurney.
0: And where are you standing?
2: I'm standing right beside him. And on each side of the gurney are the executioners, one on each side. And by the time we got there, he was already strapped on the gurney. He was covered with what looked like a, a hospital blanket. It, it, it's like it was, it was deliberately designed to make it look like a benign surgical operation in a hospital. And uh, so I was not allowed to approach him before they started releasing the poison. I have to stand keep a distance from the gurney Orlando and I'm talking and I would you know I've already explained to him what we would be doing the last rites that he would recite and he on his own I mean he started doing it on his own I really didn't have to help him in any way he just started reciting on his own and he kept reciting and uh, even after they started uh, releasing the poison he was reciting uh the prayers that he knew in Arabic Alhamdulillah Rabbil alamin Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawm al-Din Iyaka na'budu wa Iyaka nasta'in Ihdina assirat al-mustaqim Sirat al-Ladhiina al-amta'viyim How did you know when he was gone? He stopped reciting. And then... Uh, Within seconds, his mouth opened wide, uh, like he started yawning. And later on, I, I read uh, yawning, that's an indication that they're, they can't breathe. They're trying to breathe, but they can't. So it's like drowning. And so he yawned a number of times, at least three times. And then he was gone. The time that you are waiting, that's the most difficult time. That's when you start thinking. That's when it hits you. Uh, you know, it's quiet. Nobody's saying anything. Everybody's waiting, waiting for the doctor to come and, uh, and pronounce him dead. That's when you it hits you how surreal it is, how absurd it is.
0: back when Yusuf first took the assignment to counsel Orlando, it felt simple to him, instinctual even. He saw a fellow human being in need, and he decided he'd help. But that moment after Orlando died, the whole thing stopped feeling so simple.
2: I'm in this room, and I am participating in the killing of a fellow human being just, just a few hours ago was healthy, they assign you a role to play in this execution. That's when all these thoughts crowd into your mind.
0: The aftermath, after the break.
1: Hi everyone, this is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started.
0: A little before midnight, on November 19th, the United States executed Orlando Hall. Yusuf was standing right beside him. And, you know, it's all these thoughts that crowd your mind. Yusuf looked around the room. Once Orlando was gone, it was just him and the executioners.
2: You just, how surreal it is. How, like, we are the high priest's of this sacrifice that we're sacrificing. it You know, it, it begs to go back thinking about, you know, when, when people uh, used to sacrifice humans to their gods. It's like that, that we are the high priests and we are sacrificing this human being to satisfy some kind of a not, you know, religious right, but a secular right. Did you
0: feel like one of those high priests too?
2: Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, it hits me that I am participating in this and I am playing a role that they assigned me to kind of legitimize what they're doing or furnish this religious, spiritual side where they are providing the secular side of the sacrifice. When you're left to your thoughts, you say, uh, see, that's exactly how they planned it. But then I will correct myself and say the only reason I'm there is because if it were not for him wanting me to be there, I wouldn't be there. And by the way, that's when it hit me why he wanted me to be there. Because in that room, I was the only friend he had. The other people there came to kill him. I was the only one he could look and say, you know, that person doesn't intend any evil towards me.
0: What were you, like, thinking on your drive back?
2: Oh, before I went home, I was, uh... I did not expect it to affect me the way it did. It was really traumatic. And I was really angry. I was very angry. I was angry at the whole the whole system that brought us to that point. It's the system that allows them to do that. It's the system that segregates people. It's the system. that's what you need to tackle is the system that allows that to happen time and time again. And those who perpetuate it and those who support it and those who benefit from it. Uh, you have to address that if you want this to change. Despite the trauma and the anger, and uh, I I'm glad I did it.
0: I mean, I think I was just trying to think about your choices here, your decision to opt in, because you're not actually doing the executing, but it does strike me that you made a choice here to involve yourself in something you didn't have to.
2: Well, you know, you can not solve a problem if you run away from it. You know, that's what I tell my children because they're disgusted with the system here. <laughs> my son that I told you we went to get motorcycles, he talks about it all the time. I want to move out of here. I want to, you know, move to Canada or New Zealand or... And I said to him, look, during the, uh, all the struggle, African-Americans struggling here, all, all the people who were killed during the civil rights movement, look how much they accomplished. Those who stayed put, those who worked hard. Some of the rights we enjoy here is because of their sacrifice. You were born here, you belong here, and, and, and things are going to get better. I, I have lived here in Bloomington, forget about anywhere else, longer than I lived anywhere else. So although I would enjoy being back in Somalia with my children are here and my grandchildren are here, I'm not going anywhere. I will contribute to the to the struggle as much as I can.
0: Not long after Orlando was killed, Yusuf got another call. There was another Muslim man on death row named Dustin Higgs. Dustin, it turned out, needed a spiritual advisor too.
2: I just felt obligated, you know. uh, This guy who's going to be executed, he wants you to be there. That's the least you can do. What else can you do? You can't say no. I mean, how can you say no?
0: On January 16th, 2021, Yusuf was present at the execution of Dustin Higgs. Dustin was the 13th and final person executed by the Trump administration.
2: Yes, I guess it's human nature to become inured to things. We can get used to almost anything. You know, like those guys whose job is to execute people, they get used to it. So uh, I hope I never get used to it. But I wouldn't change what I did. I would I would do it again. I hope I never do it again. I hope that was Dustin will make history and be the last person executed by the United States government. Let's hope. Let's hope.
1: This episode was produced by Alvin Melleth, Gabrielle Berbet, and Julia Longoria, with editing by Matt Collette and Catherine Wells. Fact check by William Brennan. Sound design by David Herman. Music by Tasty Morsels. Special thanks to Katie Bishop and Najeeb Amini. Our team also includes Natalia Ramirez, Emily Botine, and me, Tracy Hunt. If you like what you heard in today's episode, Tell a friend to listen to the show. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this episode. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, this is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started.